You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Once again, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is episode... 60 of season 3, episode 125 of the podcast, May 23rd, 2021, Sunday morning. Today we're going to talk about the greatest story ever told, rated G, four hours and 20 minutes long according to IMDb, although I think Amazon Prime shows it as a little over three hours instead of over four hours. It is a movie that I grew up watching. It was one of just a handful that we had on VHS when my grandmother Renew, grandfather Renew, sent us the combination TV VCR that I grew up watching movies on. I watched Disney movies on that. I watched Fievel Goes West on that. I watched whatever VHS tapes we had on that. And there were a couple of pivotal, long-form classic movies that my grandmother sent us that were on the shelf. And so, in the absence of a better idea, when you're looking for something to pass the time, me and my little brother Bryce, we watched these movies. And among the movies was Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston. Also, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. And also The Greatest Story Ever Told, which doesn't necessarily star Charlton Heston, but he does play John the Baptist. If you're picking up on a theme, you're not the only one. For some reason, I guess we needed a lot of Charlton Heston movies in our house, or so my grandmother and grandfather Renew thought. So we had these films on biblical themes, And it's funny how much Charlton Heston alone as a person helped to shape my opinion, my emotion, my feelings, my sentiments with regards to the Bible growing up. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't confined to watching these biblical epics when it came to developing an understanding of God's word. But yet, as I mentioned here a few podcasts ago when I was talking about The Lord of the Rings and I was talking about The Hobbit, watching The Hobbit movies with my kids. It's funny how when you watch a movie that is also a book, the actors and their portrayal of characters in the book somehow stays with you. And so then even when you're reading the book and you close your eyes, if you've never seen what this person actually looked like, you maybe picture the face of the actor playing this character in the movie version. So if I were to read J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit again today, I would probably close my eyes, and when I am reading about Bilbo Baggins, I would imagine uh, Martin Freeman's face. I think Martin Freeman is the character, actor, the guy who plays Bilbo Baggins in Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy. So also with John the Baptist, when I close my eyes and I try to picture what John the Baptist actually looked like, I see Charlton Heston's face. That's just what it is for me. 
Nobody else can hold a candle to the portrayal of John the Baptist by Charlton Heston in The Greatest Story Ever Told. I rather like Heston's portrayal of John the Baptist more than I like Max von Sydow's portrayal of Jesus. But even in the case of Sydow portraying Jesus, he brings a kind of gravity, a kind of reserved strength to his presentation, to his portrayal of Jesus. There's something to be, I think, admired in the way that he speaks when he is giving the Sermon on the Mount or when he is healing a man that is lame, that can't walk, when he is correcting the teachers of the law as they are emphasizing certain things and they're totally uh, glossing over other things from God's law. There's something to be admired there. There's a kind of strength of character when he is being tempted in the desert by Satan. He has this back and forth in which he is sober-minded and vigilant, I would say. He quotes scripture back to Satan as Satan is twisting scripture to try and get Jesus to submit to Satan. But it's funny, as we paused the movie about an hour and a half in last night, me and the kids were watching it, or I should say I was trying to watch it with the kids. My oldest two, they were sticking with it. My daughter was sticking with it. Some of my other sons, all of my other sons were to varying extents, to different degrees, having a hard time staying focused, sitting for that long. But my son Eli, my second oldest, who is almost 13, he turns 13 the end of June, and we're going to go on a father-son trip, just the two of us, just like Josiah and I did last year, although we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to do something else per Eli's request. In fact, I think we're going to do some things that I've never done. We're going to go some places that I've never been, and so it should be a treat for both of us. Eli wants to go to Carlsbad, New Mexico for some reason. I shouldn't say I shouldn't say for some reason as if I don't know, but he read online that there's good fishing there, and he wants to go fishing, and so I guess we're going to learn how to go fishing in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Maybe, just maybe, we'll get into the Carlsbad Cavern, and along the way, on the route from Greeley, Colorado to Carlsbad, New Mexico, just so happens to be Roswell, New Mexico, and so we might stop in at Roswell and just see, right? Just to say that we've been there. We've never been there before, and it could be a treat. But Eli commented to me last night after we paused, and I said, okay, guys, that's it. We're fighting a losing battle here, staying focused. Let's just call that good for tonight, and we'll finish watching the movie tomorrow, maybe. Eli said that he didn't much care for Jesus' haircut in The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I totally understand what he means. I don't fault him at all. I don't think that's disrespectful. I think that's fair game. Jesus has a bit of a weird haircut in that adaptation. This movie came out in 1965. So the mid-1960s, you have some weird things going on in culture, the sexual revolution, questions of gender and sexuality and whether they are social constructs are coming to the fore, not because they just came out of nowhere, but that's a topic for another podcast episode. I've touched on it before. 
But needless to say, you have the hippie movement, you have this proclivity in the West to have gurus coming in from India and elsewhere and bringing an Eastern mysticism and having people join cults because they are hungry for something beyond just a materialistic consumer type Christianity, a materialistic consumer type culture where everything is just mass produced, cookie cutter, standardized, conformist. And one of the ways that that expresses itself, perhaps, maybe, is in the wardrobe, wardrobe, uh, costuming, and haircuts and makeup decisions in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Max von Sydow has uh, a bit of a feminine haircut, in my opinion. It's not even just that his hair is long. That's not necessarily what's at issue here. But you compare and contrast Jesus' haircut in The Greatest Story Ever Told with John the Baptist's haircut. And John the Baptist and Jesus, even though they're on the same side, obviously, they are different people. They're different characters. They have a different uh, expression of themselves. They're different personalities. They have a different purpose. John the Baptist, as one of my kids pointed out, looks like the stereotypical caveman. He looks like he walked off the set of Planet of the Apes and right onto the set of the greatest story ever told. For all I know, they were filming both movies at the same time, and he did, just didn't even bother changing. He was so busy, he just goes straight from one movie into the next. But John the Baptist is wearing camel skins, and that's scriptural. That's according to the Gospels. He was wearing camel skins and eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness. He was a bit of a wild man. Mark Driscoll used to make a bit of a joke here that John the Baptist was a weird homeschooled kid who dressed funny, didn't care that you thought his camel skin cloak and tunic were odd looking. He didn't care what you thought of his unkempt hair, his uncut hair. He didn't care what you thought of his diet because he's busy, don't you know? He's got other things, better things to do than worry about what you think of his haircut and his clothes and his eccentric food choices. He's got better things to think about and worry about, like calling you to repentance and dunking Herod's soldiers when they come to the River Jordan to arrest him. Repent, repent, he says, as he dunks them in baptismal fashion. It's not so dissimilar, although it is a little more serious and seriously funny not so dissimilar from Nacho Libre baptizing, so-called, his buddy Escalito in Nacho Libre. But you have John the Baptist. He is the prototypical wild man look. He is the voice calling, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is rough looking. Half his chest is bare and hairy and tanned and bronzed and sweaty. And the other half has this really rough cut camel skin because he probably does live in a cave. He probably does live 
as a caveman, as a throwback. He is the paleo man of God. He is the macho man. And Jesus, meanwhile, once this earlier form of prophet has pronounced the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus is going to come in with clean robes, clean white robes. He and his disciples are all going to wear clean white robes. And Jesus is going to come in with a perfectly trimmed, manicured look, with perfectly straight, combed hair, with a neatly cut, neatly trimmed beard, with soft eyes, with a soft, gentle voice, with a German accent. And he's going to say, neither do I find any reason to condemn you to the woman caught in adultery. He's going to very gently, very quietly, very softly rebuke the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. In contrast to John, who's going to get in a shouting match with Herod when he gets arrested. And Herod is questioning him and cross-examining him about who this Christ character is that they're pronouncing the king in the streets and in the towns and villages of Israel. King? Jesus is king? No, 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 no. Herod is king. We can't have people saying this kind of stuff. Herod has taken his brother's wife, and John is going to loudly let him know that he needs to repent because he's going to hell. You are going to hell, and nothing will save you if you don't repent. Herod, meanwhile, is shaken. You can clearly tell based on the acting and the way everything is shot. Herod is troubled by what John has to say, but he's thinking about it. He has to pause a little bit because nobody ever talks to Herod this way. All of his sycophants, all of his guards, his soldiers, all of his advisors, all of these mealy-mouthed people who, if they have any reservations about what they're ordered to do or asked about or what Herod wants to say, what he wants to hear, all of those folks, they wring their hands and they bite their lip and they look back and forth rapidly, rapid eye movements, rapid blinking nervously, because this could cost them if they stand up to him. It could cost them the same way that it costs John. John loses his head. He is beheaded. But John, meanwhile, could not care less. He cannot even make himself care about what Herod might do to him. Do what you will. Do your best. Do your worst. You don't scare me. Cut my head off. What is my body? What does it matter? I belong to God. You're the one who should be afraid. I'm not afraid of you. That's what I love about Charlton Heston's portrayal of John the Baptist, is it has this almost perfect counterpoint. He is not afraid of man at all. At all, at all. Not even a little bit. There is no measure of restraint which is due to being afraid of what Herod might do to him, being afraid of what the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees might do to him. They come out earlier in the movie, not to give anything away, but you should have read it in the Gospels anyhow. They come out to question him. 
to try and look into what is this John character going on about out here? He's pulling attention away from us. And he rebukes them. John rebukes them. Who warned you to flee from the coming destruction? Ooh. Ouch. You can tell why he got into trouble. But it was a good trouble. It was a good kind of trouble. He's preaching repentance. They should repent. That's his job. That's his job is to preach repentance. At a certain point, Jesus is talking with his disciples about John. And he says that among men... Among those born to women, none has been greater than John. That's pretty huge. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I still don't fully understand what that means and all of its implications, but it's still something. It's still something to note that Jesus says there's nobody, no man who's been born to women who's been greater than John. What do you do with portrayals of Jesus in film and on TV? What do you do with them, especially when they can be wildly different? There was a series called Matthew I was given VHS tapes on back in my early 20s. There was a family that we went to church with who recommended them, and they said, hey, you should read the Gospels, but you should watch this series because the portrayal of Jesus is just really great. This is a really great Gospel portrayal. The Gospel of Matthew is presented here. And I remember when I was at Yellowstone Community Church as well, and Butch Hart is advising not just me, but also me with regards to the way that people are relating at YCC And there were some issues with the way that some people were relating to others, the way that they were carrying themselves, the way that they were handling conflict. It was not biblical. It was not godly. It was not according to the scriptures. And you couldn't rebuke them. You couldn't call them to repentance. They'd want your head, metaphorically maybe, but not so differently than the way that Herod wanted the head of John the Baptist. And to rebuke them, brought all kinds of introspective questions about what are your motives? Why do you want to rebuke them? Why do you want to call them to repentance? Why do you want to confront them? That's a wicked desire on your part. This is selfish motives. You're just trying to be important. You're just trying to be the guy. Interesting. I don't remember ever, ever Wondering that about John the Baptist when I watched The Greatest Story Ever Told. I don't remember ever thinking that John is just doing this because he's an arrogant prick. He is all about himself. He is conceited. He is puffed up. He's calling these scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law and Herod himself to repentance because he's full of himself. He's conceited. He's just trying to show them up. I never would have asked John the Baptist that question. And yet, that was the question that I was being delayed with repeatedly over and over again every time I wanted to confront these persons who were being abusive and malicious 
with anyone who contradicted them, anyone who had a different idea about what should be done, anyone who had influence that they didn't ultimately get to take credit for or supersede or commandeer or co-opt. And what do I get asked? I get asked to check my motives. And so I did. I lost a lot of sleep, staying up late at night, rehearsing, replaying, watching over and over again the scenes in my mind of conversations I had had with people, conversations I might have with people, and why do I want to say that? Why do I want to ask that? Why do I feel this way about how they're treating people, how they're treating me, how they're treating my family? One of the things I was encouraged to do was to rewatch the series Matthew, in which Jesus is portrayed by an actor as very friendly, as very lighthearted, as very joyful, smiling all the time. He was the smiling Jesus. He was the one who, when he's confronted with sin and sinners and folly, chuckles like a parent indulging a precocious toddler. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> you brood of vipers. <laughs> oh, you guys. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but all the same, that's a funny line of attack with which to undermine somebody's convictions, that sometimes conviction leads to confrontation and rebuke. There's this scene in The Greatest Story Ever Told where Jesus and his disciples go into a synagogue after having encountered Matthew, the text collector. And they go into the synagogue, and a teacher of the law is holding forth on God's law and how you should regard sinners, and you should turn away from them, and you should turn them away, and you should send them packing, have nothing to do with sinners. And Jesus, at the back of the room, quietly but clearly says no. And then the sermon resumes, a little while, a couple more lines and again, he says, no. And then everybody stops and they look at Jesus and the guy who is preaching asks, do you have something you'd like to say? And Jesus proceeds to correct their misunderstanding calmly, soberly, with a German accent, with kind of a sissy haircut. Not that the real Jesus had a sissy haircut. I don't think he did. But Max von Sydow Per George Stevens, director of The Greatest Story Ever Told, did have a bit of a sissy haircut. It's not a good look on men or women, by the way, that haircut. Just, just don't. But Jesus proceeds to correct the understanding. And one of the things that he says is that if your brother sins against you, you go to him quietly, privately, and you make your case just to him alone. And if he listens to you, that is to say, if he confesses his sin and repents and tries to restore you in whatever way he has damaged you, then you have regained your brother and forgive him. That's how you're supposed to relate to sinners, particularly sinners who have sinned against you. You restore them lovingly, but you can't restore them lovingly without correcting them, without rebuking them for having sinned against you. You have to call them to repentance. And so there, Jesus and John, the Baptist, 
are in clear agreement. You call for repentance. In fact, the very fact that John the Baptist is sent by God to prepare the people for Jesus, to herald the arrival of the Messiah, the very fact that God sends John preaching repentance before Jesus goes to show that in God's economy, repentance and confession and rebuke precede restoration. I read Paul David Tripp's book here recently, Lead, 12 Gospel Principles for Leadership in the Church. And you can check out my episode in which I deal with that book and my concerns and reservations about it. Episode 56 of the season, episode 121, May 18th, so just earlier this week. But a phrase that Tripp likes to use often is restorative grace. And what he means by restorative grace is that when we have leaders in the church who are caught in sin and they go off the rails, we should not be throwing them out so quickly as we often are inclined to. We shouldn't be casting them out, discarding them, having nothing more to do with them so quickly as we often are inclined to. We should be trying to work with them. Maybe they have to step down from leadership, but that doesn't mean that you have no responsibility to them. It doesn't mean that they're not a believer. It doesn't mean they have no place in the church anymore. And we need to remember restorative grace. A phrase that Butchart liked to use very often was, pour grace on it. And he would use this phrase when I mentioned that we need to be clearly confronting bad behavior instead of just passively, aggressively, indirectly, always doing an end run around bad behavior in the church. We should be doing more than dealing with it from the pulpit. We should be doing more than accommodating, tolerating, enduring sin and bad behavior and bad attitudes on the part of prominent people in the church, leaders in the church, people who presume to lead, presume to instruct the leaders of the church to put bits in their mouths like, they are riding a horse or hitching it to their buggy. We should do more than pouring grace on it. But he would respond and say, we should pour grace on it. Which is another way of saying we should forgive them without calling for repentance. We should forgive them without rebuking them. We should, ref we should, should forgive them without confronting them, without correcting the bad behavior. I'm sorry, with respect, sir, that is not biblical. That might be convenient if you're feeling especially non-confrontational, but that is not biblical. Some traditions maintain, particularly pacifist traditions maintain, that that is biblical, but it isn't. That is not biblical. If that is biblical, then John the Baptist makes zero sense. Jesus confronting the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, makes no sense. The apostles correcting, rebuking, confronting in the epistles makes no sense. Matthew 18 makes no sense. You could say, ah, well, Jesus is Jesus. You're not Jesus. Hmm, well, yeah, but I'm a Christian, right? Or are you questioning that? Are you questioning whether I'm a Christian if I want to confront 
sin and bad behavior and bad attitudes and unbiblical teaching and examples by leaders in the church? Are you questioning whether I'm a Christian if I want to call for repentance? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. John the Baptist was John. You're not John. Well, yeah, but all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for correction, for rebuke, for instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Study to show yourself an approved workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. You can't do it with gentleness and respect if you're not willing to do it at all because you're always pouring grace on things. You can't do it with gentleness and respect unless you're doing it. And what is gentleness and respect? Is gentleness and respect defined by our fear of man issues sometimes? I'm convinced that it is. Sometimes we have fear of man issues and we stop short of the whole truth and nothing but the truth because it's going to upset that person. Well, is that the test? They're going to say it's disrespectful because how dare you rebuke Herod and tell him he should repent of taking his brother's wife? Is a respect for Herod avoiding that issue? Well, it can't be. It can't be. You can't rebuke somebody and call them to repentance for a sin against God and their fellow man if it's disrespectful inherently to do so. Rush Limbaugh surprised me here a few years ago before he passed. Not that I listened to Limbaugh much, but every now and then, if I was bored and I was curious, I might turn on the AM FM radio in my truck, take a break from audiobooks, just to check out what's on the radio. Just out of curiosity, what is coming in over these radio waves and what are other people possibly listening to on the radio? And I remember one day up in North Dakota, I'm doing this, and Rush Limbaugh's program was on. And so I listened in for a little bit, and he's talking about what he termed defining down degeneracy. And he's talking about the LGBTQ movement constantly moving the goalposts. They say, this is what we need now in order to have equal rights, in order to have human rights, so-called. We have a human right to be ambiguous or to be perverted or to be rebellious in the way we express our gender and sexuality. We have a right to be affirmed now. Now we have a right to come and take your child away and to change their gender without you even knowing it. If you send your child to public school, we're going to start them on hormone therapy without you even necessarily knowing about it because you might interfere And the goalposts constantly moving and conservatives who oppose these things constantly backpedaling, accommodating the moving of the goalposts, realize, as Rush Limbaugh was pointing out, they realize that they weren't able to stop this movement there or here or this place. They have a track record now of getting pushed back further and further and further from the original standard. And so rather than holding the line, they keep defining down degeneracy so as to normalize things which they have no appetite of curbing. They have no appetite for curbing the bad behavior, the bad attitudes, the untruths, 
they're not willing to call for repentance and to rebuke and to stand firmly against these things. So they just change the definition of what is and is not success, what is and is not righteousness, what is and is not true, what is and is not perverse, wicked, wrong, evil, corrupt. Sometimes being gracious means that you turn the other cheek when somebody's being insulting because they didn't mean it that way. They're just tired. They're just not feeling well. They're just having a hard day. So you forgive them and you don't necessarily have to pick every battle and die on every hill. But sometimes being gracious means rather than leaving you to your own destruction, I'm going to take time out here and I'm going to put energy and attention and thought and care and even my own relationship with this person, my own well-being and comfort and convenience on the line to try and restore them to a right relationship with God and with me and with other people around them. Sometimes being gracious requires that you confront bad behavior, even if it's going to cost you your head like John the Baptist, even if the person you're confronting is going to hate you for it, despise you for it, punish you for it, punish people around you for it, even if they're going to call into question your motives, because motives or not, what you plan to do is going to be disruptive. It's going to upset the apple cart. It jeopardizes them. The greatest story ever told is that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How did God give us Christ? Did he only give us Christ as a character in a story? We can portray any old way we like. We can emphasize the historicity of to the exclusion of the supernatural did he give us Jesus so that we could interpret him like Thomas Jefferson did, cutting out all of the miracles from the New Testament, from the Gospels, distilling only the moral teaching of Jesus? Because Jefferson liked that, but he didn't care for the supernatural. Did God so love the world so much that he gave us Jesus only as a savior for when we die? so that we have higher insurance, only so that we don't go to hell, but we can live in hell now, live in turmoil, in chaos, in folly. There's the scene in the movie, and it's also in the Gospels. And if you had to pick one, you should read the Gospels instead of watching a portrayal of the Gospels, which sometimes emphasizes certain things, sometimes downplays certain things, sometimes takes creative license. But there's this scene, this portion of the story in which Jesus is mourning Jerusalem, talking about all of the prophets who have been sent to Jerusalem to call God's people back to repentance, to a right standing with God, with one another. They're sinning against one another, they're sinning against him, and the hardness of their hearts prevents them they have hearts of stone. And so what do they do when they're brought this message of repentance, which is a sign that God loves them, wants to restore them? He wants to pour grace on it, actually, not just in theory. What do they do? They stone the prophets. They drive them out. They drive them into the wilderness. They drive them from polite society because they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear repentance. They don't want to repent. 
So therefore, they don't want to hear about repentance because it's a buzzkill. Herod doesn't want to hear repentance. He's busy indulging himself. The teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they don't want to hear repentance. They're good people. So then these people who think that they're good, who care more about ambition, power, wealth, self-indulgence than they do about God, lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of the truth, they stone the prophets, they behead the prophets, they drive them out into the wilderness, they drive them from polite society, they drive them from positions of leadership and influence, from the public squares, and if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work, they arrest them, throw them in prison, and put them to death, because they can't come up with a better argument, because the truth is not on their side. I watched the first hour and a half of this movie with my kids last night, and they got fidgety, some of them, several of them, and it got to be a point of diminishing returns where it's like, you know, we're just going to pause right here because some of our attention spans have maybe been too shortened. It occurred to me that I sound like my father a little bit. When I was your age, I didn't have YouTube to watch all day. I didn't have video games and computer games to play all day. When I was a kid, what I got from my dad was when I was a kid, we didn't have all this money for toys and Legos and all that kind of stuff. We we had duct tape and a rock and a stick. And we played Black Beauty with our imagination. That duct tape and rock and a stick made Black Beauty and we're just riding around in eastern Montana on Black Beauty, me and my brothers, my sisters. That was all we needed. Okay, Dad. But I do have Legos and a Super Nintendo. And so, yeah. But now I'm doing it, right? And now I'm, I am, I guess, receiving the baton. And so then as my kids are getting fidgety, a couple of them in particular are getting fidgety an hour and a half into the movie, which is not an action-packed Marvel flick. It's not Star Wars. It's not a Michael Bay Transformers movie. There's no explosions left and right. There's no witty, fast-paced dialogue, except when John the Baptist is on screen. There is a lot of slow, calm, patient tension sometimes, grandeur, reverence. And that's a lot of the reason why I thought this is a good thing for me to watch with my kids. They need for things to not always be so quick and easy and so sensational. Sometimes things need to not be all excitement and lasers and ninjas and pirates and Vikings. Sometimes things need to be brought down a notch. Come on back down to earth for a minute except when John the Baptist is on the screen. That's an exception. But I had to pause the movie at a certain point because it's like, hey, guys, I'm trying to watch this with you. You guys are being disruptive. You're cracking jokes here and there, and you're wandering off because you're bored, and you don't want to watch this movie right now, but you need to. You need to watch this. And maybe you don't want to, but you need to, and you might just be surprised if you sit down and watch this movie with me you might be surprised at a certain point when you benefit from it. Like I know you should benefit from it. 
And in the benefiting from it, you'll see a value in it. So just trust me. Trust me when I say this is a good thing for you. It isn't to say all of this is so fantastic, like Jesus' hair. Max von Sydow's hair is not the best. Okay, I grant. I grant you that. The film quality is a little grainy. It's not been remastered. Eli asked me if this has been remastered. And if so, they should probably do something about Jesus' hair. Okay, yes, 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 yes. I agree with you. But let's not miss the big picture here. The big picture here is this is a classic movie. You don't have to watch it every day, all day, for the rest of your life. Watch it once. You guys have never seen it. I grew up watching this. It was beneficial to me. So I would say the same thing to you, audience, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. That captures all of the genders, all of the possible genders, all two of them. You might just check out the greatest story ever told and forgive them as we want to be forgiven when, what, 35, 55, 56, 56 years from now, this movie came out 56 years ago, when 56 years in the future, our grandchildren are watching movies that were made in 2020 and 2021. We want them to forgive us for the things that we thought were fashionable and made us look very cool, suave, spiffy, very smart, very clever. So also forgive the movie makers and actors in 1965 for thinking that this was always so fashionable a way to present things. But God says his word will not return void of power. And insofar as the word is being brought to life in some fashion here or in others, it might be worth watching. It might be worth even unpacking sometimes. Why does that not quite sit right with me? Why do I think that that maybe is not quite the way that Jesus carried himself or that John the Baptist spoke to Herod? Or why do I think that that's maybe not quite the way that that scene played out? That could be beneficial. That could be a good topic of conversation, a good thing to consider and to be Bereans about and to search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. It could be a good basis for conversation as a family. It could be. Maybe if we can make it that way, if we can keep from getting frustrated with our children or with ourselves for sometimes being too easily distractible, for being undisciplined, etc., etc. But I'll stop going on about that. Enough about that. I've said my piece. Thank you for listening as always. And a question for you. If you've watched a lot of movies and TV shows, we'll leave off with this. If you've watched a lot of movies and TV shows portraying the Gospels, who did it best? Who wore it best? Uh, do you think a particular portrayal of Jesus is closer to the mark and why? Whose portrayal of Jesus do you think has been the closest to what Jesus actually was like, his mannerisms, his way of relating, his way of speaking to his disciples, speaking to those tax collectors and prostitutes that he was willing to associate with, his way of speaking to the crowds, his way of speaking to the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, Pontius Pilate. Who do you think has done the most accurate job of bringing that 
to life? And how do we get better at bringing that to life too in our context as little Christs, as Christians? But that's all. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.